Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. In the American criminal justice system, a person suspected of committing a crime can be released from custody pending a trial if they post bail, a monetary payment that will be refunded if they make their court appearances. Suspects often turn to a bail bond company if they or their relatives and friends are unable to come up with the money required by the court. New research is pointing out flaws in the bail bond system that can adversely impact low-income communities. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Joshua Page discusses his study of the bail bond industry. He joins us by phone. Professor Page, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Uh, thanks for having me. How did you become interested in studying the American criminal justice system? I was getting my doctorate at Berkeley in sociology the first year I was there. I got an email asking if people wanted to volunteer at San Quentin Prison as part of their college education program, which was run all by volunteers from local universities. And I didn't go to graduate school to study the criminal justice system. It was through that experience that I became really interested in it. And my first research I ever did, the first thing I published was on the provision of higher education to prisoners. And then it just went from there. It was a fortuitous experience that led me to where I am today. Most people are familiar with the concept of bail. We can think of TV and movie courtroom scenes where the judge bangs the gavel and sets bail for the defendant. But can you give us an overview of how bail actually works in the U.S. criminal justice system? main model is what we could call commercial bail. And in that system, and this is a system that only exists in the United States and the Philippines, in this system, say a person is arrested and the judge gives them the option of posting bail, say, for $10,000. And in that case, they could pay the court $10,000. And as long as they make all their appearances during the process of the legal case, they'll get that 10000 back, minus fines or fees. But because the vast majority of people who are arrested in this country are low income, it's often very difficult to come up with that kind of money. And so we have a private industry that offers to put up the bail for them. So the defendant can call the bail company from jail and the bail company will then arrange with the defendant's family and friends to secure a premium for that $10,000. So then the defendant and his relations would pay the bail company $1,000, which is the premium, 10% premium. The bail company will keep that $1,000 for their overhead and profit, and then the company will post basically a promissory note with the court for that $10,000, if the defendant does not show up for all of his or her appearances, then the bail company would be on the hook for that $10,000, at least in theory. And then the company would have the option of trying to find the defendant, possibly with the help of a bounty hunter. And if they return the defendant to jail, then they won't be charged that $10,000. If they can't find the defendant and are charged that $10,000, then they typically will try to recoup that amount from the defendant's co-signers because with each bail, you have to have a, somebody to co-sign it, like co-signing a loan. 
On TV and movie screens and in real-life reporting of high-profile court proceedings by the media, we often see bails set for upwards of hundreds of thousands to perhaps millions of dollars. How are bail amounts determined? Bail amounts are determined through a court process, is that a person is arrested, and once they're arrested, typically the following day they'll go for their first appearance at the court, and at that appearance, the prosecutor will ask for a certain bail amount. The defense attorney will then try to get a lower bail amount or no bail amount, and then the judge will make the ultimate decision about whether to order monetary bail, if they decide to order monetary bail, how much that monetary bail should be, and whether or not to impose other conditions such as checking in with the court or a curfew or staying away from alleged victims and so forth. You're listening to Dialogue Minnesota. I'm Jim Dubois. We're talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Joshua Page about his research into America's bail bond industry and its impact on low-income communities. Obviously, the amount of bail will depend on the severity of the crime, but is any consideration made by the court to the ability of the defendant to actually come up with the money? Typically not. And this is actually a subject of court cases across the country right now, that people are saying that judges, by not considering ability to pay, that judges are violating the equal protection cause of the Constitution. Typically, the main considerations in bail, well, let me go back. Courts are allowed to consider two criteria when deciding bail. The first is concerns around failure to appear. Does the judge think that this person will appear back in court? So then they take into consideration if the person has been through the legal process for have they showed up for court. Are they anchored in the community through work and family and so forth? So failure to appear, the potential of them failing to appear is the first condition. Since 1984, the law has allowed courts also to consider threats to public safety. And so the court can consider whether or not this person is dangerous, a threat to public safety. In my experience, through observing court, and there's research to support this, typically the main consideration is around public safety. But that's really a subjective appraisal that the judge makes. Who profits from bail and how much profit does bail generate? So, well, it's complicated, but the main uh, money makers in bail are actually large insurance companies. So the public face of bail is like, you know, Dog the Bounty Hunter and sort of mom-and-pop bail shops. And they can generate substantial profits, though the industry is incredibly competitive. But each bail company has to have be insured by a large surety that underwrites all their bonds. And so those companies then take a percent of every bail that the bail bond company writes. And they very, very rarely have to actually pay on any of these bonds. Very few bonds are actually forfeited. And if they are forfeited, the bail companies have their own reserves. And so these large insurance companies break in millions of dollars through their underwriting of the bail bond shop. So they are the big money makers in the system. And then you have the larger bail companies in various cities. You know, they can make substantial profits. Bail agents themselves, they can make a decent living. It's pretty rare for them to, you know, 
know, make, say, over $100,000, but they can make, you know, a decent living. But it's really these large corporations that are sort of invisible in public discussions around commercial bail. Well, does some of the money from the bail process stay within the criminal justice system to, say, provide funding for jails? It depends on the jurisdiction. So, yes, say, coming back to our hypothetical person who has to pay $10,000, when they deposit that money with the court, the court will take out some fees that will help go to paying for services in the court. Going through the legal process, defendants have to pay a whole bunch of other kinds of court fees just through going through the process, which have escalated in recent years. You know, the court can take in revenue through charging for, say, electronic home monitoring or other conditions of bonds. And then they make the money through fees to the bail company. And so if the bail companies, you know, if they don't, if people don't show up on time, they'll typically charge them 10% of the bond or so forth. But bail's not a, you know, it's not a, a big money make. Well, jurisdictions that use commercial bail don't make significant money from the commercial bail system themselves. It's the private entities that make the money. Now, that being said, by contracting out this service to these private entities, they then you know, don't have to dole out money for monitoring defendants, chasing them down. That's the work of the bounty hunters. And they can you know, save money by contracting out in a way they are. This is a revenue-protecting industry, if you will. Who typically uh, pays for the bail? We know that uh, the person who puts up some of the money, obviously, would have to be either the defendant themselves or a family member or a friend. But how does this process work, and how does this financially impact already vulnerable communities? Yeah, no, that's a great question, because when we think about bail, we often think about the defendant for good reason, right? They're the ones that are in jail and need to get out. But because they are in jail, they need other people to arrange, often arrange the money to come up with the premium. Those people are actually usually family members or close friends, sometimes bosses. But not only do they need the person to come up with the premium, they need to find co-signers. And this is a really important point that we often don't talk about, is that as I said, for each bond that a company writes, they require at least one co-signer, like somebody when you go to get a loan. Somebody will co-sign the loan. Typically, if the co-signer has to be 21 years old and have a decent-paying, steady job. Now, that can often be difficult for people that are in jail to get somebody on the outside to agree to do that who is actually eligible. So there are times when people who are in jail they or their people on the outside can come up with the premium, but if they can't come up with a co-signer, they also could remain in jail. That often is the case. And so, yes, you're right. It's the bail bond system, the commercial bail system, draws in an enormous population of people we often don't think about into bailing out defendants. And the vast majority of these people are women. And so you have, you know, most of the defendants are men, but most of the people that actually bail out, that actually come up with the premiums because of the loans, are women, typically mothers, grandmothers, partners, ex-partners. And so these people then, to be able to do this, they have to sign these very onerous contracts that allow the bail companies to search their records. They're the ones that become on the hook for this, and they're the ones that are putting up 
a lot of the money. And so when we think about the bail system, we have to think about this enormous other population that's being drawn into the system and often are going into debt over paying these bails. Let's talk again about the role that bounty hunters play when someone skips out on bail. Uh, is the bounty hunter like the bounty hunter we see sometimes portrayed uh, in the media? Yeah, so the bounty hunter also called a fugitive recovery agent, is what they like to be called, but colloquially called bounty hunters. These are people who either work you know, as part of one company, but more and more they're freelancers. They contract with various companies. So what happens if a person doesn't appear in court and the bail bond company is at risk of forfeiting that bond, meaning having to pay the full amount back to the court, the bail company can send a bounty hunter to find the defendant. And these bounty hunters basically have police powers. They can search a property without a warrant. I mean, they actually have more powers than police because they can search property without a warrant and so forth which go back to the bail contracts, because in signing the bail contracts, both the defendant and the co-signers give the bail company and its agents the authority to you know, search their records, to search their property, and so forth. What do you say to the argument that as long as an innocent person shows up to court, they will eventually get their bail money returned? Well, yeah, that could be true, but the thing with the commercial bail system just to be able to bail out, you pay that 10% premium and don't get that back. So say if that bond is $10,000 and you pay that bail company $1,000, if you go through the whole process, nobody will be charged that full 10000 but that defendant is already out $1,000. And so that argument is fair for those who can actually deposit the amount with the court. But since defendants typically don't have the money to deposit with the court. They're not depositing the money or getting it back, but they're losing that premium. You're listening to Dialogue Minnesota. I'm Jim Dubois. We're talking with University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Sociology Joshua Page about his research into America's bail bond industry and its impact on low-income communities. How could the bail system be reformed in the criminal justice system? Would the cost of bail change? Would more restrictions on profits be put into place? Or do you think the whole concept of bail needs to be abandoned? I mean, right now, bail reform is happening in many places across the country. California passed major bail reform legislation, as did New Jersey, Cook County, and Illinois is reforming their bail system. So there are various models. Most of these try to eliminate the reliance on money in the bail system. And so rather than having people pay money to the courts or to a bail bond company, they could do various things. They can require people to be monitored by a pretrial release agency. They're basically like probation departments within the court. So there's various conditions that can be put on them, you know, including electronic home monitoring. You can have people sign a promissory note, and if they don't show up, then charge them amount of money. But right now, the major reforms are trying to, you know, get out of the system that privileges those with more money that can deposit that money to the courts rather than without actually losing it, and that don't, you know, extract wealth from already vulnerable populations. There's various models that are happening right now across the country. 
Can we learn anything from the way other countries handle their system, if such exists, of, of bail and trying to incentivize uh, people to show up to their court appearances? Yeah, and again, there, there's all kinds of different models, but some of them actually provide some important warning signs for reformers, especially, say, like Canada, that don't use commercial bail. So along with commercial bail, nearly all states also instituted a constitutional right to bail. So the court has to set bail for defendants. Now it can set it in millions of dollars and make it prohibitively expensive, but there's still a constitutional right. Now when states like New Jersey implement bail reform, they get rid of this constitutional right to bail and make it possible that the courts can implement what's called preventative detention, meaning they could just detain the person in jail throughout the course of the legal case until it's you know, settled through trial, the charges are dropped, or most commonly, plea bargained. And so they can detain it, but they can also move to put all kinds of conditions on defendants that make it very onerous and quite likely that the person will end up back in jail. And sometimes then they actually get charged for these conditions. So they get charged for electronic home monitoring. They get charged for you know, taking alcohol tests and so forth. And so, you know, there can be other expenses put into the process. And so you can get a process where far more people are actually um, lingering in jail or put it on onerous conditions in the name of sort of equity and fairness. And so that's a real danger that but people are trying to sort of struggle with as they seek to reform the bail system and get rid of commercial bail. So, for example, New Jersey implemented an adversarial process. So if the court or if the prosecutor wants to have the defendant detained pretrial through this process of preventative detention, the prosecutor actually has to provide evidence that the person is a threat to public safety or is a real threat to not showing up to court. And the defense attorney can actually rebut those charges, and then the judge can decide. So it's not an automatic decision. So that's a promising way to avoid the danger of ending up with high levels of preventative detention, high levels of very onerous conditions. Professor Page, you had mentioned earlier that the bail system may have an issue of gender equity since it's often women who end up uh, posting the money for the bail. And I would assume in these cases the majority of the offenders are probably male. Is there any effort underway now to try and um, deal with that gender inequity? Well, I think as long as you have a system that relies on coming up with money and coming up with co-signers, I think, both the bail companies and the defendants often turn to those they expect to do the care work in our society, which are typically mothers, grandmothers, wives, partners, friends. And so it's difficult if those are the people that are willing to do the care work or feel the pressure to do the care work and have the resources. It's hard to see how you would actually legislate. You can't really legislate who can or would be the co-signers. So I think the system has sort of evolved in a way or developed in a way that in our society, care work is very unevenly distributed and placed disproportionately on the shoulders of women, whether it's caring for children, caring for you know the elderly and so forth. And we have this gendered structure in our society that makes it that certain people feel pressures to really come up with that kind of money and to take on those responsibilities. So 
I think that's a question that's well beyond the bail system, but plays out somewhat predictably in how commercial bail actually operates. Joshua Page is an associate professor of sociology and law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Page, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. Coming up next week, a look at toxic workplace environments. What distinguishes a tough and demanding boss from one who bullies and abuses their employees? I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.